Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, welcome again to my time capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I talk to various people about the five things from their life that they would like to put into a time capsule, four things that they cherish and would like to preserve, and one that they would like to be rid of and never have to think about again. My guest this week is the comedian and writer David Bedeal. David first came to fame in the Mary Whitehouse experience with his then-comedy partner Rob Newman. His success continued when he teamed up with Frank Skinner for Fantasy Football League and Badil and Skinner Unplanned. During this time, he co-wrote and performed with Frank and the Lightning Seeds the chart-topping song Three Lions. David has written a number of best-selling novels and his children's books have sold over one million copies and been translated into 26 languages. He's also written several films, including The Infidel, starring Omi Jalili, which later became a hit musical. More recently, David has returned to stand-up with his show My Family, Not the Sitcom. He was touring in his new show about internet trolls when lockdown interrupted it. But fortunately, that gave me the opportunity to ask him via Zoom what five things from his life he would like to put in a time capsule. And these are the things he chose. I hope you enjoy it. David, David Badil, how lovely to see you. Welcome to my time capsule. Thanks, Mike. Well, yes, so I'm looking forward to the time capsule. Uh, Great. Well, how are you before we... Are you all right? I'm very well, yes. I'm all right. Well, you know, the weather's nice. Yeah. I've got seeds growing in my greenhouse. Okay, you've got a greenhouse. I've got a greenhouse, yeah. Oh, wow, that sounds nice. I've never been very green-fingered myself no no it's not really a thing for me it's a number of things i can't do i think i've accepted about myself and one of them <laughs> is agriculture i can't it's i'm never going to be able to grow anything i don't think apart from hair out of my ears as i grow older <laughs> yeah as with all of us yeah i know uh, i have to say growing things is not difficult you put seeds right. in earth right and give it enough warmth and water and they sort of take care of themselves right yes uh, I could give it a go. 
I just feel I will screw that up somehow in ways that perhaps no one had guessed was possible. <laughs> uh, if anyone, I don't know if you watched, I was on Taskmaster, um, which is a show on Dave. Yeah. Uh, a very funny show in which uh, Alex Horn and uh, Greg Davis set various comedians, various, what seemed to be fairly simple at times, tasks. Yeah. And it was good for Morwenna, my wife, in many ways, because Morwenna has always said, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> you know, there's something about like the very like you approach practical tasks in a way I've never seen anyone else do. And I was always like, no, I don't. And then I was sitting there in the studio watching film of me doing tasks. Uh, and I thought, oh, no, she's right. I'm really <laughs> weird. And Greg Davis, I remember saying at one point, because I very much lost. I came last in yeah. Taskmaster by quite a long chalk. <laughs> Greg Davis saying at one point, uh, I think the part of the issue for you is we set you a task and that's difficult. But then with you, you have to add on being David Baddiel. Uh, and he's absolutely right. I seem to approach all of them. So my worry about growing something is I will, for some reason, I'll think, well, this will be best in my pants yeah. or something like that. I'll, I'll, I'll put the soil and the tomato seeds in my pants. That's obviously the right place for it. It's worth a go. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a warm environment. Not much sun. <laughs> no. So, sh- shall we? Shall we kick off the time capsule? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. What's the first item you'd like to put into the time capsule? Uh, well, the first item is I don't know if a living thing, although living is a. Uh, it may not be living, it may be cryogenically frozen in there, which I think is a thing that might be perfect for this. I'd like to put in my cat, mm. uh, one of my cats, which I'll come to which one it is in a moment. But I definitely like a cat because my whole life uh, I've had cats. Uh, it was a thing when I was young. I grew up in a very, very male environment. Uh, my house was dominated, I would say, by my dad, Colin Badil, who's Welsh and <laughs> much more male than I am. And actually, that seems to be passed on because my son, Ezra, is much more male than I am. Maybe maleness skips a generation. (laughs) And I know I was associated in my youth with sort of laddism and stuff like that. But all the time that that was happening, I always thought, I'm not really much of a lad. I'm sort of a nerdy intellectual. I hardly drink. I'm normally in monogamous relationships. What is this idea that I'm a hellraiser? But my dad was a bit like that, Uh, still, still is in his ancient dementia that he has now he has a kind of laddish form of dementia where he swears and shouts a lot he does he swears a lot doesn't he swears he? and shouts a lot uh and uh so it was a very male environment two brothers him uh and the sort of feminine softer part of the house apart from my mum who was herself mad uh i would say came through the cats we had we always had cats. My dad was actually very, very affectionate, much more affectionate than towards me or my brothers, <laughs> towards the cats. Yeah. Uh, we had a cat. The main cat that I think of is a cat called Fomfa. Uh, and Fomfa... What is it? Yeah. Well, Fomfa. It's a strange name. Uh, Fomfa was my dad's slightly quasi-Yiddish word for purring. <laughs> it's an onomatopoeic word. My dad thought... And I don't know why he didn't know the word purring. I mean, maybe he did, but didn't... <laughs> didn't think about it, he, he would hear fomfa purring and he would say, oh, she's fomfering. And it isn't a bad word for that. No, it's a good word. Fomfa, fomfa. But it's sort of a Welsh idea of, of, of uh, Hebrew. Almost. Yes, it, it sort of is. And he would say slightly Welsh Hebraic things to her, like, are you fomfering, fomfa, <laughs> when she was purring. Um, and, in fact, she had, a, she had kittens at one point and he called one of them Ben Fimfling Fomf. Which <laughs> sounds very Hebrew, doesn't it? Ben Finfling. Yeah. Uh, and then the other one, my mum called Had to See Potter, which is not Welsh or Hebrew, and I would say a precursor of Harry Potter. 
which if only she had thought about it and made that not a kitten but a boy wizard, we could have been a much richer family. You would never have to work again. Yeah, exactly, but that didn't happen. Uh, so anyway, Fomfer was the cat then, and that's not the cat that I want to put in the time capsule. Right. I went on to every part of my life, I would always try and have a cat. For me, uh, a home is not a home unless it has a cat. It's I very much associate it with cosiness, having a cat. Mm. So when I lived with Frank Skinner, we got a cat. Uh, if anyone who doesn't know, I lived in a flat with Frank Skinner uh, in the early 90s. It was kind of an interesting thing in itself in that I was already on TV. Frank was a comedian on the cabaret circuit. And he didn't have anywhere to live because Frank had split up from his wife uh, mm. and also split up from his girlfriend. Uh, and <laughs> he had been living with these women in Birmingham and London and just didn't have anywhere to live. And I, I hardly knew him at this point, but I liked him. And I offered him a room in my uh, flat and I charged him 40 quid a week rent. And six years later, we stayed living in the same flat for six years. He's on telly. He's a major star. He's doing massive tours. I'm still only charging him 40 quid a week rent. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's economically ridiculous. Uh, yeah, no wonder he stayed for six years. Yeah, indeed. I should have means tested it, shouldn't I? That's what I <laughs> yeah. should have done. Anyway, Frank's not a particularly a cat man. I think he's more of a dog man. Mm. Uh, but I wanted a cat, and it was my house, my flat. So I was able to impose that. But he said, I'll only have a cat if we call it the cat in true grit. Now, in John, John, he's a big John Wayne fan, and John Wayne has in True Grit, a cat, which is called something like General Galtieri. It's not Galtieri. It's some long <laughs> Spanish name. But it's named after, like, a general and called the general in True Grit. And we yeah. got the cat, who was a kind of tabby female cat. Not a kind of. It was a tabby female cat. Uh, and the general didn't feel right for her. It just felt like I tried calling her the general. It didn't feel right. And so we had a brainstorm. We had a writer's meeting. And in the end, uh, we came down to a very simple thing. Frank's a big master of puns, which was we said to each other, OK, what does the cat do? What does the cat do? A lot. And I said, meow. Bit root one, but that's what I said. And Frank immediately, because he's got an incredible brain for puns, said, chairman meow. <laughs> that's and so that was, that was the cat's name, chairman meow. And I think that's a brilliant name for a cat. I think it's a brilliant name for a cat. Yeah. I have seen it elsewhere. Uh, I'd like to patent it. Because I've seen it elsewhere. I've seen it on Will and Grace. They had a cat. Uh, one of the characters had a cat called Chairman Meow. And I think that was nicked. Not nicked, but passed on unconsciously <laughs> because uh, there's a writer on Will and Grace who Morwenna, my wife, knows. And I think mm. uh, she probably told her. And I think that's how it found its way into it. And every so often on Twitter, I hear discussions of what's the best name for a cat. And someone will say Chairman Meow. And then I will always pile in and say, that's our name, that's mine and Frank's name. Uh, and we, we uh, came up I with that. I gag. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you've, you've got a timeline for that as well, actually. You can prove that, that Well, you? that's you absolutely can... true. We should have patented it. The timeline, well, I don't know exactly where we got chairman, uh, but uh, I lived with Frank from, like, 1993 to uh, something like 1998. Mm. So let's say it's 1994 yeah. that we got the cat. Someone listening to this needs to go back and check the scripts of Will and Grace to find out when <laughs> Chairman Meow appeared in Will and Grace. If it's 1995, I'm definitely right. In goes the writ. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so let me tell you the ups and downs of having a cat with that name uh, specifically. So the first time I took Chairman to the vet, 
I was in the reception room waiting for my turn. There's various other people in there with various animals. And the receptionist says to me, when I eventually, you know, bring her to the desk, what's the cat's name? I say, Chairman Meow. It gets, and I say it, I think I deliver it. I'll be honest with you. There's yeah. an audience in there. I go for it. I say, Chairman Meow. And it gets a big laugh. You can't laugh. resist it. Couldn't resist it. Yeah. Big laugh. I'm very happy with that. But I noticed that on her computer, the receptionist has just written down Meow. Like just her surname, <laughs> right? And I wanted to correct her, but I didn't bother. But that meant that when I went into the actual vet through the door, the actual vet's got the cat out and he's examining her. I could see the vet look at, at his computer and think, Meow? What a shit name for a cat. How unoriginal is that? Can't you do any better than that? You're a comedian. You're a writer. And I wanted to explain how this had happened, but it was sort of too complicated. Yeah. And then another strange thing happened with that cat's name, which is uh, she would go wandering, as cats do sometimes. And there was a woman called Caroline who lived nearby. And and she'd go there, and I think Caroline was feeding her, because that's what they do. Sometimes cats will appear and claim not to have been fed. They'll do that by mm-hmm. meowing. I don't know if you know. They'll they'll meow, and other people think that cat's not been fed, and the cats are tricking oh, them. Oh, poor thing. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's what was happening. But Caroline would then bring the chairman back to me, and she was quite a I know best person. This Caroline, and one time she decided. I think she'd said you should get her a collar, and I never did. And then she got her a collar. She got her a collar, but she didn't write on. She just handed her back to me with the collar. She didn't write yeah. on the collar. She had it engraved. The chairman or chairman meow. She put David. My phone number was underneath it. My phone number at the time, I had a house in Belsize Park. That phone number and David. And I thought, this is a bit weird, right? Because my worry was that with the cat still wandering about without me, that one day, Morwenna, my wife, who I was living with by then, would pick up the phone and someone would say, I'm very sorry, but David's been in a road accident. Oh, no. Yeah, sh- no. Shall we just look? Shall we just hit him with a shovel? Because, I mean, <laughs> every day David was always shitting in my garden, so frankly. And it keeps trying to shag my guinea pig. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I used to do that as well, to be fair. Uh, but um, that's what I'd like. I'd like Chairman Meow in the time capsule. Very good. Yes, Chairman Meow, she will go in there. But um, isn't it strange how vets like to give animals surnames? Usually they give it the surname of the person. Well, they do do that, yes. That's a good point. They, uh, In fact... The the most recent cat that I sadly had to put down, who was called Monkey. Mm. Uh, and, oh, God, weirdly, in the 35 years or whatever it is that I've had cats, I've only had to myself go and take one cat to the vet to put them down. Mm. And, oh, my God, it was the worst experience of my life. I mean... It's horrible, isn't it? I mean, horrible. I, I sort of mean that literally almost. In the moment, it felt like one of the absolute worst things I've ever done. Hmm. Uh, and uh, actually, I wrote an article about it for the for the Sunday Times or the Times, can't remember what it was. And the response was very interesting because I talked about the slight embarrassment and shame I think that people have in admitting how much they grieve yeah. for their lost pets hmm. because they sort of think, oh no, someone will say, come on, it was just a dog, it was just a cat, and fuck that, I think, because the relationship one hmm. has to these animals is is very very close, um, and they feel very much part of your life. And, you know, whether or not you should compare them to the death of a a human being is a moot point. But I don't think you should belittle how awful it is. No, absolutely. Not just lose them, but be responsible for their deaths. Yeah, quite. Actually, with Monkey... Making the decision. With Monkey, I must just tell you, it was really awful because the first... I mean, he was very ill. And I went with Dolly, my daughter, who was unbelievably strong. I mean, I was in 
buckets. I was weeping mm. and weeping, but Dolly was very strong at the time. She was only 15. Mm. Anyway, the vet did two things that sort of now make me laugh, sadly. One was we took the, took the cat to the vet and the vet suddenly said, do you want a couple of minutes alone with him before I do it? And I hadn't been expecting that. No. And honestly, that was so difficult, not least because Monkey started to purr. He started to fomp uh. He started to fomp during that time. And I thought, oh, how awful we are that the cat thinks this is a nice moment. I mean, it is a nice moment, mm-hmm. you know, in a very, very large sense. It's the right thing to do. But the cat doesn't know what's happening. He just thinks, oh, here I am with my owners. I'll, I'll purr. He was a lovely, lovely cat. And the other thing that happened was when she actually did it, I couldn't actually stay in the room when she did it. Some people do. I couldn't. Uh-huh. She, I said, we'll just wait. She came out and she said, she actually said, I think without knowing it, monkey's gone to heaven. As in the pixie. So I don't know whether that reference has meant something to you, Mike. Sorry. But, <laughs> no, go on. but there's a song by the pixies called monkey's gone to heaven. It's their biggest hit. Um, and, <laughs> I didn't know yeah, that though. And, so it was like she was suddenly singing a song by the Pixies, which felt like incredibly <laughs> weird and inappropriate, uh, but sort of be- beautiful at the same time. Yeah. Anyway, just to answer your question, yes, I think I saw once on their computer that he was called Monkey Badil. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what they do. They call them your surname. That's right. Uh, have you got a pet? Uh, I, I haven't got any pets left, I'm afraid. No, they've all gone. Oh, no. yeah, two cats died recently, and it, again, it was traumatic and awful. And uh, and then I had a chicken that uh, just the other night was, I'm afraid, eaten by a fox. Oh, that's that's bad news. Were you close to the chicken? Oh, very close. It was a great companion, a chicken. I had spent a lot of time in the kitchen... In, I'm in the kitchen. I spent a lot of time. <laughs> well, the... possibly when it was laying eggs, I imagine you had her in the <laughs> yeah. kitchen the whole time, just as a complete egg service. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Come on, come on. I need another one. <laughs> I think people ever do that. I think people ever think, well, I can't be bothered to have it in the yard. I really need, you know, the chicken up here on the worktop, basically shooting out the egg straight into the pan. So you wrote kitchen battery chicken. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. With its arse above a pan. <laughs> exactly. Right. Anyway, the catch fire is the problem there. She did used to lay eggs, but only until about three years ago. And then, you know, she just got too old and ran out of eggs. Yeah, like women do. That's. The chicken's gone through the menopause. Yeah, yeah. Chicken's, chicken's gone through the menopause. It's like a weird version of monkeys gone to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> like the pixies will do a version called that. Yeah. So, what did you used to do when you hung out with 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 the, what was the chicken called? Well, it was called Pecker. Yes, Pe- Pecker. I have to tell you, is a bit root one. It's a bit like meow. It is. For a cat. Yeah. It's like calling it cluck or something. <laughs> you know? Yeah, feathers. <laughs> but it was a lovely chicken. It was very sweet. It was not, you know, it just as you follow you around, sort of going. Yeah. And if I found a little worm while I was digging the garden or if I was working in my greenhouse, it would come in there and just watch me work and peck away at a few leaves. Well, one of the things I, I very much think is uh, sort of like, I think as I grow older, but maybe also as, as, a, as a society as we, as we grow, is that animals uh the the sort of personalityness uh, for want of a better word the humanness of animals mm. becomes more and more apparent to me like within an incredibly small range of expression by our standards mm. all of my cats have got very that I've ever had have got incredibly distinct personalities yeah i think we're living in a time where we're realizing this more actually the internet is very responsible for it because the internet is so full of small films of animals yes. doing often very human things the more i see a gorilla in a swimming pool. Like, so have you ever seen those? Sometimes you see like 
yeah. films of gorillas playing in like a paddling pool yeah. or, or a donkey that's seen its owner for the first time for five years and is incredibly emotional. You think, like, why are we pretending that these species are different from us? Yeah. Just essentially so we can eat them or kill them or poach them. Mm. Because they're not. They have clearly have the same emotions mm. that we do. Mm. Anyway. There we are. Yes, we're going to put Chairman Mao into the time capsule. and uh, Chairman Mao. I think you said Chairman, Chairman Mao. Did I? Did Can I? we not have any typos here? Because if I <laughs> do my time travelling into the year 3020, I open my time capsule and Chairman <laughs> Mao is in there. The bloody Chairman Mao's in there. Chairman Mao, responsible, no let's be honest, responsible for the deaths of millions in China during the Cultural Revolution <laughs> and the Great Leap Forward. Whereas Chairman Mao can't be blamed for that at all. Chairman Mao is responsible only for the deaths of about seven mice. Okay. So right. I mean I mean that's bad, but not as bad. No, it's not. <laughs> Chairman yeah. Meow yeah. is going into the time capsule. So that's your first item. What's your second? Okay. Well, I've got to put in and this is partly because I'll be honest with you, Mike, I'm a storyteller and in my shows uh that I've done recently, particularly the first two, I did a show about fame, I did a show about my family, I've told a lot of true stories about my life. Mm. And I don't want to tell the same stories on this podcast. I just, Good. for my own sake, partly. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to put something in that, I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure it would be my first choice were it not for the fact that it's got a story attached to it that I haven't told, <laughs> or not for years anyway. And I want to tell that story. But it does also relate to me in, in one or two important ways. Yeah. So I'm going to choose. There was a big old reel-to-reel computer that they used to have at the mm. Science Museum in the 70s. It, the Science Museum, as you know, is an interactive space for kids yeah. where you can find out about science. And this was probably the first computer that I'd ever interacted with. And in a way, that's quite a good thing to put in because computers are vastly important in my life, uh, as mm. in everyone's life. But, you know, I write on computers. I interact with the wider world on computers. And, you know, it's probably the thing I spend most of my time with. Really, mm. is my, I probably spend more time with my computer than I do with another human being. So the first <laughs> computer that I ever interacted with was at the Science Museum. So this particular computer, the way they used to demonstrate its capabilities to children was it used to play animal, vegetable or mineral. It had a, it had a type you know, keyboard and you could type in clues for the computer to the animal, vegetable or mineral you were thinking of. Mm. So it would say, you know, how many legs has it got? Does it have feathers? You know, what does it eat? And you would put seeds or whatever. And after 20 questions, it would say, is it a chicken? Is it pecker? No, it would say, is it a chicken? Is it a duck? You know, is it a cat? Based on the information you'd given it. Very good. But I, I, I discovered something about it, which is you could tell it an animal that it didn't know. So because it was, you know, back in the 70s, it didn't have that many things in its databanks. It wasn't a no. all-knowing computer like we have now. So... It was set up for this so that if, for example, it didn't know the distinguishing characteristics of a duck-billed platypus, after it asked the 20 questions and you had said whatever, because you're a clever naturalist young person, you'd said, oh, it only eats water midges or whatever, Hmm. it would say, I don't know what this is, please could you tell me, right? Yeah. And you would say, it's a duck-billed platypus, and it would then have that in its data banks. It would learn from it. So when the next person oh. came along and it fed it the same kind of information, the computer would then proudly be able to say, is it a duck-billed platypus, right? Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. now, I don't know if you spotted, there's, there's an opportunity <laughs> for, com- where you're going. For, yeah, for yeah. comedy here, and I did this. I actually did it. 
I would go down to the science museum and I would make up an animal. I would say it's got five legs, it's got two hearts, it's got six eyes, uh, you know, it eats raw potatoes or whatever. <laughs> and when at the end of that 20 questions it would say, I don't know what this is, please could you tell me? I would say, it's a cunt. <laughs> and then I would do it all again immediately for the brilliant, brilliant moment when the computer very politely would say, is it a cunt? <laughs> it, would, it would ask 20 questions and then very proudly think, I know this one. Say, <laughs> I've learned. I've learned. Yeah. So you could do that with that computer. You could make oh, it. Oh my word! I mean, in a way, it, it represented the enormous triumph that I think we don't have anymore yeah. over AI. Mm. Like now, you could do that because a computer would have to be, you know, extremely backward and not have much in its databanks, not to know every animal, yeah. or indeed not to know that it was it was being fooled by someone saying. Yeah, it's got 27 legs and it's got fur and it's got uh, seven hearts. It's so a- there is no such animal. Yeah, there is no such yeah. animal. Don't don't try and pretend to me that's an animal called a cunt. <laughs> I know it isn't. I was going to suggest to you, because I know you're the sort of person that once you've had an idea, you go with it. You actually make it happen, which is a complete opposite of me. I am a person who has an idea and then goes out to the shops. Right. And so I was going to say, why is there not an app that does this now? It's a great game. There may be an app. There may be an animal, vegetable, or mineral app. But one of the problems with what you've just said, um, and I remember once writing something which never got made, which had a character in it who was continually coming up with ideas for apps, and his children were continually telling him, no, that there is one. Yes. Like, <laughs> I think people of our generation, certainly a few years ago, yeah. one thing we constantly thought is, hey, I've had a brilliant idea for an iPhone app, and they'd always already be done. Hundreds of them. Someone in Silicon Valley, yes, will already have done it, as you say, hundreds of other people as well. But I would like that computer to be there. Uh, I'd like that computer. It's quite a big thing, so it would have to fit in the time capsule. Uh, It had a a big old sort of Amstrad-style screen. I think you went into a little booth, actually, to do it, which allowed me, when the computer said, I don't know what this is, please can you tell me, to say, it's a cunt, (laughs) Uh, and then... Immediately do it all again and wait for it to say, "Is it a cunt?" <laughs> and no, there was no guard who could say, "Oi, you! What are you doing?" Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, what I really hoped is that one day someone else would come and fit in a sort of vaguely similar animal, but with a real animal that they were thinking of, and the computer would say to them, "Is it a cunt?" And they'd be absolutely <laughs> appalled, and their parents would report the science mummy, museum. Mummy, mummy, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know if that ever happened. You know what I've never done, Mike, yeah. is I've, I don't know quite what I would Google, but I've never tried to find out from Google or whatever, you know, if that computer exists now, you know, or some version of it, whether that game was in any way well known in the computer community. I don't like, know. Because I've been, for example, like I went uh, to Northern California a few years ago and I went, there's a museum uh, in Palo Alto where they have computers from, you know, years and years ago from very, very early models, but also incredible computers from the 60s and 70s Mm. that just look brilliant. Mm, They look like those computers that you expect are mainly in apocalyptic films from the 70s that stand with reel-to-reels and say, I have been programmed to prevent war, but then go wrong. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Or the one that just has one message, I can't do that for you, John. Yeah, yeah. The flickering, the very yes. thick flickering cursor. Green. Yeah. yeah. I'd like that computer with me. I mean, there is a slight problem, I think, with the time capsule point of view, in that I think when people open the time capsule, 
unless they know very specifically. I mean, I might have to write instructions yeah. for the people in the future to say, this is how you play the game, this mm-hmm. is how you do the joke, mm-hmm. and get it to say, is it a cunt? Yes, you need this description. Yeah. It's yeah. got five legs yeah. to start with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I promise you, you should definitely yeah. write the instructions but not tell them the result. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Actually, yes, if I program the computer to already know what a cunt is, uh, but don't tell them the game and say, could you just ask what animal this is? Let's see what happens. Yeah. Yes. Then that will be funny. That'll be, I'll be laughing as I die. <laughs> okay. Well, that computer from the Science Museum. Oh, yes, it's going into the time capsule. I, unfortunately, it's going to the time capsule because I'd like to have a go at it. I really would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Brilliant. So what's your, what's your third item, Dave? Right. We're going to take a short break here for some adverts. We'll be back in a minute. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome back. Okay, let's get back to David Bedil and find out what else he would like to put in his time capsule. The third item, my first car. Mm. And my first car was a Triumph Dolomite. And uh, I don't know if anyone knows what a Triumph Dolomite looks like. It's sort of a very 60s looking car. Mm. And it speaks to some extent of my, of my non-maleness, again, that I mentioned earlier, because I don't know anything about cars. And I bought this car and it was, it, I quite liked it. Like I've always liked stuff like that. I also once had a moped from 1957. Uh, and the moped, which I got in an antique shop, I bought a moped from an antique shop, <laughs> never worked. It looked like the sort of thing that Norman Wisdom would be flying through laundry on yes. when it was out of control <laughs> in, a, in a black and white film. And it never worked. When I first met Morwenna, I remember she had to push me down the street because I'd, I'd gone to her house. It, it had managed to get to her house, but then couldn't start. She had to push me down the street on it. Um, <laughs> so I was always buying stuff that I just I thought looked nice because it looked old, but I would have no idea how to fix it. I mean, I've had various cars like that. Uh, and my first one was the Triumph Dolomite. And 
I discovered afterwards that it was about seven cars welded together, I think, when I took it for its first MOT. Uh, and I, I was gigging at the time. I was doing the cabaret circuit. And, I, and as well as the constant anxiety of thinking I'm doing the late night at the comedy store or whatever, uh, I would also have the anxiety of thinking the car's going to break down. It's going to break yeah. down, definitely. Yeah. Anyway, the reason that I'm including it is I want to tell a particular story, <laughs> which I still think, how could this have actually happened? But it did happen, which is... The, the next car that I got, I can't remember, I think it was a Renault 4. But I went to, I thought, well, look, I'm, I must try and like not get a shit car. I don't know anything about cars, but I'm not going to just buy the first car that I like the look of, which is what essentially happened with the Triumph Dolomite, and indeed the moped. Uh, I'm going to see if I can cover the waterfront of cars and look at a few cars. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to a place in Uxbridge. And when I got there, there was a bloke... <laughs> There's a bloke there whose name was Rick, right? Yeah. He was the guy who was trying to sell me this car. I can't remember anything about the car. Uh, he was called Rick. And while we were talking about the car, a friend of his appeared. Uh, this was, and we were just sitting in, the front, in his front garden. His car was in the drive. It was quite a nice day. Mm. A friend of his appeared. You're going to have to believe me that this is true, by the way. Okay. His friend was called Amadeus, <laughs> right? He said, this is my mate Amadeus. And I said, oh, right. And I, because I didn't know much about the car, I thought, oh, look, I don't know much about the car. I'll tell you what, let's sit down and just sort of like look at the car and I'll sort of pretend that I know what it is. Yeah. And we sat down and I was in the middle of these two men. We just sat on the ledge. And then I realised, and it, it was like a, a moment from heaven, but it got nothing. It got nothing from these two men. I said, oi, mate, oi, just a minute, because remember, I'm in the middle. And I turned to the first bloke and I went, Rick, me, Amadeus. <laughs> it was an amazing moment for me. I thought, how could the heavens have conspired that this moment has, has happened? But the thing is, it got nothing. Nothing. They had, never, they had never heard of the song Rock Me, Amadeus. No. Right? They were younger than me. They just thought, what is he going on about? And I said it about four times. I said, no, no, no look, Rick, me, Amadeus, don't you get it? And it got absolutely nothing. And in the end, I thought, I can't buy this car. No. Because it's now become too awkward. I couldn't even remember Falcao, is it? Falcao, Falcao yeah, but yeah. I, yeah. But I couldn't explain it. It was before the internet, so I couldn't play them a version of Rock Me, Amadeus. They just thought I was mad to continually Uh-oh. be saying this. And it was too embarrassing. And for all I know, that would have been the perfect car for me. Mm. But because of the Rick Me, Amadeus, Peral, <laughs> Snafu... Oh I no! The, I the horror of trying to explain a joke of, of yeah. slightly saying Rick and making it sound more like rock. Yes, exactly. Wreck me, Amadeus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You go yeah. no, no. I want no. to leave now. Let me go. Yeah. Horrible. I mean, in a way, that's part of the perfection of it because I think if I was yeah. making this up, I would say he was called Rock, which is a name, Rock yeah. Hudson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but no, he wasn't called Rock. He was called Rick, <laughs> uh, and I mean that's. Who? Because the the bloke with the car, I remember this was called Rick, so that's completely normal. Yeah. And I wouldn't have expected anything comically fortuitous to happen with a bloke called Rick. But I think I had a twinkle, a, a, a tinge in my head of like something's something's happening here when it, the friend turned up and he was called Amadeus. <laughs> Amadeus, it's yeah. extraordinary, isn't it? I it's did incredible. a tour of the play Amadeus, and uh, right. and I, I did this tour with a very young Helen Baxendale. Yeah, and she, I think it was her first job out of drama school, uh, and we had a glorious time. And we would play the theme tune to our show was Rock Me Amadeus. Oh, right. Um, so it holds a, a special place in my heart. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, it doesn't really for me as a song, uh, but I would say that moment holds a special place in my heart for the idea. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, as you probably know, I'm very much not a believer in God or anything um, immaterial at all. I'm a sort of incredible fundamentalist atheist. Mm. And yet that's one of the moments where I start to think, well, hang on a minute. Yeah. Like, surely some kind of comedy god does exist, that he's, <laughs> he's made that moment happen. What I love is the fact that you treasure that moment, and it's a failed joke. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. It absolutely died. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> on its arse. Yeah. And I, did, I kept going with it. I was so excited. <laughs> I kept going with it. And still nothing from Rick or Amadeus. No. <laughs> I kind of think someone called Amadeus should be aware of Rock Me Amadeus. You Don't would you think? think so, wouldn't you? Would you would know that would be the thing that people would say to you all the time. Surely they'd be singing that song. No, he looked completely blank. Uh, <laughs> I mean, my memory of him was that maybe you know he was young. He was you know he was not a big fan of Falca of German rock in yeah. the eighties. I think we're going to have a problem with this podcast because one of these has to be something that you don't like from your life and you want to bury in the ground to get rid yeah. of. But you seem to cope with any form of embarrassment yes. or awful situation and in a way always see the humour of it. Yes, that's true. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking about that. But literally, there is nothing that has ever happened to me. And maybe I'll tell one of those stories uh, later on, because there are a couple of things I have thought about that could go in mm. for the bad thing. But they're all stories that I'm very happy to tell. Because as far as I'm concerned, if you can get laughs, if you can make people laugh from telling them something that's happened to you that is incredibly embarrassing, awful, cringy, disastrous, then you've redeemed it, yeah. haven't you? I'm sure you have, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's the same, I'm doing a show which has been cancelled and postponed mm. now, which is about trolls on the internet. And when people say to me, oh, aren't you upset by trolls? And I always say, no, well, I might be upset for a second, and then I think, ah, material. Mm. And that's really what that show is about. It's about transforming people being hurtful and abusive into comedy, Yeah, which seems to me to be, to some extent, the process that I've always done. You know, yes. I'm did, doing a show about my dad's dementia or my late mum's sex life or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. or just telling embarrassing stories that have happened to me when I am the centre of that embarrassment. Yeah. These are ways of making it funny, and making it funny is a salvation, yes. I would say. Yes, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, even that amazing documentary you did about Holocaust deniers mm. recently, even in that you were able to make jokes, which is... Uh, yeah which is not a subject you would imagine that would happen in. No, well, I am of the opinion, I mean, that's a whole other discussion, but I am of the opinion there's, there isn't anything you can make not make jokes about. Mm. Uh, and it's a complicated thing because I, I don't think you could say that without examples. So my point is always you can, of course you could do jokes about the Holocaust. What you have to do is look at the individual joke mm. uh, because there will be some jokes, obviously, that are horrible and mean-spirited and just laughing at the victims. And there are other jokes which will be about the absurdity of the fact that this terrible thing happened or whatever. I mean, the joke that I, I tell on my show, in my show, which is not my joke, it's an old joke that was told to me by a Jewish academic called Devorah mm. Baum. Uh, the joke I tell, which I think was in, in the documentary, is uh, after the war, a Holocaust survivor uh, dies, goes to heaven, and when he gets to heaven, God asks him to tell a Holocaust joke. And the survivor does tells a Holocaust joke, and God says, that's not funny. And the survivor says, well, I guess you had to be there. What I love <laughs> about that joke yeah. is it's funny, but it's also very profound. Absolutely. Because it's, it says, well, whether you believe in God or not, there's something very ungodlike, the absence of God mm. in the world, c- 
can be perhaps expressed through the Holocaust. Yes. And it in no way laughs at the victims or minimalizes or trivializes the truth of the Holocaust. So that's mm. my point is you have to look at you have to sort of deconstruct each joke. But I am yeah. very confident of my ability to do that and therefore to say, no, I'm gonna do a joke, I'm gonna tell stories about my dad's dementia. Yeah. I'm gonna talk about the Holocaust or whatever. Because I know that I can find ways of doing it that are not doing that, not minimalizing it and not uh, laughing at as it were, the victims. Yes, and in a way, if you find it offensive, it's because you've misinterpreted it. I did, it's not what it meant. Yes, I mean, that's you, a whole you've other... You've seen the wrong thing in it. That's a whole other problem. Yeah, I got a, I just this morning got somebody sent me something on Facebook, which was a picture of a beautiful bird, and underneath it said, only God could make something that's beautiful. Right. And I resisted for about 10 minutes, and then I picked my phone up and wrote back and said, so who made the ugly things? Yeah, so what a weird thing to say as well. Yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's not true. Only evolution could make it, and indeed, only evolution. Oh, only evolution could make the ugly things, and also, the perception of beauty or ugliness mm. is something that we've just decided about. Yeah. So yeah. the idea that a peacock is beautiful and a slug is ugly—that's our decision. Yeah. That's not something that you know, and that's a cultural decision. No, <laughs> as if God would have that, even have yes. that concept if he existed. No, indeed. You know, I'm going to make these things I really like, but. I'll make some other things that I ooh, don't like them yeah. at all, but I'll make them anyway. You know. I'll make them anyway because I want people to have a sense of like the beauty of things. So they've got to have some kind of ballpark thing to start with, don't they? So yeah. I'll make some horrible stuff, and then they'll really appreciate the nice stuff. <laughs> it's sort of like it sort of imagines God as a sort of rather rudimentary designer. Yes, yeah, so I'm all about contrast. Of, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to do your kitchen very, very boldly and boringly. You'll really appreciate the living room as a result of that. <laughs> the colours, that's going to be amazing. Very good, yeah. I'm going to put your Triumph Dolomite. Yes, thank you. So that's it. So let's move on to your next item. Okay, my next item is, again, there's a story attached to this. So the thing is a copy, perhaps a VHS copy, of Record Breakers the show with Roy Castle in it. Yeah. That was a show I used to watch a lot when I was a kid. Record Breakers, for anyone who doesn't know, it was a show in which Roy Castle, uh, an, an all-round, much-beloved entertainer, who was always doing things like playing kettles, wasn't he? Um, <laughs> yes. And jumping around in enormous shoes. Didn't he hold the world record for playing the most <laughs> instruments in <laughs> yes. five minutes? Well, I, you know what? I was always a bit suspicious of that. Because it happened on Record Breakers, yeah, mm. in his own space. And I always thought, is that a record? Is that an actual record? Have you just not made that up for Roy? Yeah. What can he do that nobody else can do? Exactly. Exactly. Well, craft a record just for Roy so that he can go in the book. <laughs> I should say, again, very doesn't know. So it was a show in which people broke records. And it had on Roy Castle as the host, but it also had on Norris McWhorter. And Norris McWhorter was, the at the time, the editor of the Guinness Book of Records. And he was their records guy. And he would actually answer on the show if you would... He Sometimes kids would say to him, what's the biggest fish? And Norris would answer in a very, very, you know, anal and rather specific, <laughs> and I'm not just on a light entertainment show for kids, I'm kind of a scientist way. Didn't he? He was, very, he was a very upstanding <laughs> yes, man. Yes, he was. Yeah. He was, yeah. So I, I was a big fan of Record Breakers, so that's why I'd like it to go in. But also because it led to a very important moment in my life. Uh, at my school, which was a boys' school in Elstree, mm. we used to have occasionally quite, quite famous speakers would come and talk to boys at lunchtime. And one time, Norris McWhorter came to speak to the boys. 
And this was sort of mid-70s. And as a result, it was absolutely packed because everyone liked record breakers. Mm. And everyone knew him from record breakers. There's a big hall. Norris comes on. And I don't know if you know this about Norris McWhorter, but he wasn't just a Guinness Book of Records guy and on record breakers. He was part of a pretty right-wing organisation. I did know that. Called something like the Freedom Party or... Mm. I can't remember now what it was called, but he was he was politically very right wing, mm. and he began speaking, and it, everyone was there to hear about Roy Castle and hear about record breakers. But no, he did a forty five minute speech, which was about the creeping power of the trade unions, how apartheid was a good thing and we shouldn't be opposing it, and essentially just a very very right wing, you know what's happening to this country. You, the next generation, need to watch out for the terrible mm. Soviet, you know, shadowing, mm. uh, overtaking of our culture, king and country, and freedom. And don't get me started on the Jews. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, at my school there were a fair amount of those, so he might have had trouble. Yeah. Uh, he would have been in big thing. trouble. He would have been in big trouble. So anyway, 45 minutes of essentially very right-wing political stuff. Mm. And then a strange thing happened, which was I remember thinking that... Uh, and I was, as I say, a slightly sensitive child in some ways, thinking, OK, this is boring. It's not what I expected. I'm a bit disappointed, but I'm now worried. I'm worried that when he asks for questions, he's not going to get questions about what he's asked for. He's going to get questions like, what's the biggest fish? <laughs> and who's the fastest man in the world? And what's the, what's the biggest spider or whatever? And he's going to be pissed off about that because it's going to suggest that no one's been listening or is interested in what he's actually been saying. <laughs> because people will just ask him questions like, what's the biggest fish? Yeah. And I became a little bit worried about this. thought it's going to be awful. It's going to be cringy. And indeed, he finished talking and he did say, right, thank you very much for listening. Are there any questions? And I'm sitting there with my eyes closed thinking it's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be embarrassing. And a boy stuck his hand up. This was the first question and said, what will houses look like in the year 2000? <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking, right, well, that is neither a question about the stuff he's been going on about for 45 minutes, nor is it about record breakers. It's a totally random question. Why has he asked that? And I'll give Norris credit. He answered it. Norris did, Norris, Norris did not say, what the fuck? Why have you asked that? He didn't say that. He said, well, I think we might be living in sort of fiberglass huts and kind of yurts who knows blah 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 i thought what, why are you going with this norris what are you doing <laughs> but it was hilarious and i have made a short film which you can see on youtube recreating the entire incident um, yeah. but i think it was important for me because it illustrated i think that life can be ridiculous mm. for me which is an important thing for my comic growth i think that i think there are times when life is just entirely random and strange and absurd and that's a really yeah. great thing and that was one of my first experiences of that, I think, of like what a sort of WTF moment yeah. that was sort of brilliant. And that often comes from children, I think. That they will absolutely suddenly go off at tangents, which are gloriously funny. Yes. Going back to Pekka, my son said to my grandchildren, I'm going to have to got some really bad news for you. And they, they said, yeah. He said, I'm afraid uh, Pekka's died. And... Uh, and there was a pause, and my oldest grandson said, any good news? 
<laughs> we're, we're roasting him. Yeah. <laughs> he was delicious. Oh, dear. Uh, there we are. Many years later, me and Frank Skinner were driving somewhere, and Norris was on some local radio station. He's an old man by now. But he still thought of us the bloke from Record Breakers. And they had a thing whereby people were phoning up to ask him questions. What's the biggest fish? Or, you know, who's the oldest man in the world? And blah, blah, blah. And if Norris couldn't answer, you'd get the Guinness Book of Records. And he, mm. was, he was brilliant. And I remember listening to it and almost feeling like, ah, oh, this is the thing that I thought would happen all those years ago. Yeah. Uh, and it's sort of happening now on some radio station in the Midlands. And maybe it's healing the moment that, that happened before. But anyway, right at the end of this, and Norris has been triumphant and everyone's you know, not won the Guinness Book of Records because Norris, even at the age of 70, is still able to remember the records. Someone rings up and says, Norris, what's the biggest ant in the world? And you can almost hear Norris think, oh, I've got this, how easy. And he starts saying, well, the something like, uh, the biggest ant in the southern hemisphere is the uh, pecker ant. Sorry, that's not your chicken, but I'm just, I'm just <laughs> spitballing here. Uh, but probably yeah. bigger than that is the uh, uh, glorio ant from, from Argentina that could actually be, eat a whole apple or something like that. He, a very long explanation <laughs> of the various contenders for the biggest ant in the world. And then the guy says, no, Norris, the answer is an elephant. (laughs) (laughs) And Norris gets really cross. That's the brilliant thing about it. Yes, of course he did. Norris absolutely didn't go, ha, ha, ha. Norris went, well, that's just stupid. That's what I was warning you about when I made that speech at school. This is the creeping creeping left wing that's brought in this sort of stupid humour. Exactly. It's Marxism that's responsible. No, he got really angry and, and didn't want to give the bloke a Guinness Book of Records. I think the DJ said, no, no, that's funny. Let, let him have a book. And Norris was like, no, no, this is ridiculous. So that was that was hilarious as well. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yes, we will put that... Um, Record breakers. Yes, yeah, the, the whole Roy Castle playing away on a kettle yeah. or a, a hose. A hose. I seem to remember. He a plays, radiator. Yes. Often playing a, ra- playing a radiator like a glockenspiel. That's the kind of thing Roy did, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, dear. Well, he's in there tapping away Excellent. for you anytime you want to go and have a look. How many more have we got? So we've done four, we've really, done four. haven't we? Okay. Yeah. So, in fact, one more that's sort of bad. My first novel, which is called Time for Bed. Now, you might think, well, obviously, you put that in your time capsule, your first novel. I've written however many novels it is. Uh, so you might think I'm just putting that in as a good thing, as a memory of my work. But no, I'm putting it in for a bad reason. Ah. And a very typical for me reason, which is that novel has a very, very minor character in it, hardly mentioned just in passing. There's a family occasion in one chapter, a funeral, I think, and a character called Avril, Auntie Avril, is referred to as, I've actually got it in front of me, Okay, and it says, Avril, who ran away from her husband uh, after having an affair with Morris Gross, a psychic investigator from High Barnet. And when I tell you this story, by the way, you, it's okay to talk about this now. It wouldn't have been okay to talk about it a little while ago, and I'll explain why. So, when you're writing a novel, every so often you think, oh, I've got to think of a name for a character. <laughs> and I can't think of a name. I've thought of a name for 17 characters. Do I really have to think of another name? And sometimes names feel wrong. They don't feel real when you're writing yeah. a, a novel or indeed a, pl- a play or a screenplay or whatever. 
And so what you do sometimes is sort of slightly change real names. And about 20 years before I wrote this novel, a friend of mine, Richard Gerrard, his name is, uh, his mum had had an affair with a psychic investigator from Hybardit called Morris Gross, right? <laughs> and I re always remembered it because Morris Gross actually was the psychic investigator in the Enfield Haunting. Really? Do you know the Enfield Haunting? Yeah. Yeah, which was a very famous case in the 70s where two young uh, sisters said they were being attacked by a poltergeist mm. and it got in the papers or whatever and Morris Gross was this psychic investigator who went and investigated it. Mm. But what I remember about him was that Richard, my friend Richard's mum, had, had a brief affair with him and Richard said that Morris had played him a poltergeist, which may have been the Enfield poltergeist, I don't know, on his tape recorder. That he'd recorded a poltergeist on his tape recorder, on his like old-style tape recorder. And what always made me laugh about it was that Richard said it was obviously Morris just doing a funny voice. Be partly because what the poltergeist said was Morris. The poltergeist said, Morris, Morris. Morris, hello, Morris. I thought, well, he thought, well, that's obviously Morris. It's obviously Morris kind of just talking to himself. Anyway, so I always thought of him as a funny thing. Like, he always had in my head. Yeah. And when it came to it, I just thought, ah, oh, that's funny. I'll just, I'll just put in actually Morris Gross, right? Now, that was a mistake <laughs> because this, this novel gets published. It sells very well. This is probably my highest-selling adult novel. It sold 200,000 copies or whatever. Mm. It's going to be a, there was at one stage going to be a movie of it. Sadly, it didn't happen. But anyway, Morris Gross is still alive at this point. This is why it's okay for me to talk about it now, because he's not now, right? Mm. And Morris Gross sued, uh, I think it was Little Brown at the time, sued Little Brown, the publishers, yeah. and he was furious. And Morris said, apparently, I never met Morris, but I saw the letters. Morris said, I got called in to like the publisher saying, sorry, have you used someone's actual name in this book, you oh, fucking no. idiot? I said, uh, I think I have, yeah. Ugh. He said, well, Morris has written a long letter saying he's never had an affair with anyone. He's only ever been faithful to his wife. He certainly never met anyone called Avril, Auntie Avril. <laughs> and he's very upset and he wants £10,000 in damages. Oh, wow. And I was like, oh, God. Anyway, the story I want to tell, which is I sat in my publisher's office and I said please let's go to court. And they were saying, well, we don't, I don't think we can do that because you basically have used his name and unfortunately you've actually called him a psychic investigator from High Bardet. That's what he is. So I, I think you'll be in trouble saying, mm -hmm. you know, you didn't know it. And I said, yeah, but here's what I'm planning to do. When we're in court and I take the stand and Morris's lawyer says, well, obviously, David, you obviously knew my client, and we're aware that my client is a psychic investigator from High Barnet, and you put his name in deliberately. I'm going to say, no. What happened was, I was just sitting at my desk one day, and I was trying to think of a name for that kind of person, and it came to me out of the ether. The name Morris Gross, a psychic <laughs> investigator from High Barnet, suddenly appeared in my mind, I don't know why, and he would not be able to say, well, that would never happen. No, no. The one thing Morris Gross wouldn't be able to say is, don't be ridiculous, that couldn't possibly happen. Yes, it knocked something off a shelf, I remember. Yeah. A, a sort of a shadowy yeah. figure went straight yes. through the door. 
yes, exactly. Exactly. A ghost came to me and said, you must call this character Morris Gross. <laughs> whatever I made up, whatever I made up as the ridiculous coincidence yes. that the, that character's name has suddenly appeared to me, uh, they would not be able to say, well, don't be ridiculous. That's that's a ridiculous coincidence. It couldn't happen because Morris's whole life uh, is based on... And did they on let the- you go to court? No, no, they paid. No, <laughs> they settled no. out of court. They settled uh, out of court. And, uh, and, and would you have to settle because you did use his name and he is he is real, or because you were claiming he'd had an affair? No, well, I think if I hadn't claimed he'd had an affair, I'd have been fine. Yeah, you could have gone to court maybe and proved that he'd had an affair. Well, I don't know how I'd have done that. I could have possibly paid someone, mm. a prostitute, to have an affair with Maurice Gross, then recorded it on the same machine that he was recording the poltergeist <laughs> With song. her going, Maurice, 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 Maurice. That would have been brilliant. Maybe that's what uh, I should have said. I should have said, look, I have heard what is clearly someone being fucked by Maurice Gross. <laughs> and it didn't sound like his wife to me. <laughs> anyway yeah. so that's that's my bad thing i have a copy of that book in hardback which i bought from the bookshop to read and when i got it home it was signed by you i was very delighted well, as you can imagine well that's nice of me i mean i'll have to one day get you to properly dedicate it i'm happy to write to to pecker <laughs> in memory of pecker Love David Baddiel. <laughs> I'm very happy to do that. That would be marvellous. Oh, David, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. And you, Mike. It's been, it's been lovely. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Michael Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, David Baddiel. You can subscribe to this podcast on Acast or wherever you prefer to get your podcast from. And why not leave a review and rate us? It's easy. You just write the word brilliant and click on five stars. Thanks. This program was produced and edited by John Fenton Stevens, and the music was by Pass the Peas Music. You can follow my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at MyTCPod, where you'll find extra photos and the occasional competition and other treats. Or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Fenton Stevens. My Time Capsule is a cast-off production. Thanks for listening. Apologies if you found the explicit nature of this interview upsetting. But we did put a little E by it to warn you, so really, you should have done your homework, you stupid twit. Yeah, I bet you thought I was going to call you a cunt. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 